back to the Future Frontlines podcast. I'm your host today, I'm Tash, I'm a medical student at King's College London and one of the founders of Future Frontline. In today's episode, I have the absolute pleasure of talking to one of my favourite GPs, Dr Andy Ahmed, and we discuss how the multidisciplinary team hierarchy has changed over her career, why she chose medicine in the first place and later on why she chose to be a GP. Um, We also have the chance to discuss what her opinions are about healthcare professionals on social media. And finally, we discuss how the pandemic has changed the way primary care functions. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. So hi, everybody. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, who's Dr. Andy Ahmed, who's a GP based in London. Um, And yeah, I will leave Dr. Ahmed to maybe introduce herself a, a little bit more. Hi everyone, Um, so as Tash said, my name is Dr Andy Ahmed, everyone calls me Andy. Um, So I have been a GP for the last cracky 15 odd 20 years, yeah 15 to 20 years and I've been in the NHS now for 27 years. Um, Mm. So it's, uh, I feel like a like a like a mum to everybody. Um, <laughs> That's what we uh, need. Yeah, uh, my specialities um, are elderly care. Uh, I love my little my little old ears, and adolescent <laughs> mental health. Um, other roles that I do. Um, so I'm part of uh, the British Islamic Medical Association and the Muslim Doctors Association, and mm-hmm. there I am working on equality and diversity. Um, I'm also a chair of governors um, at a local school which we opened up about five years ago so that's been a really interesting role. Um, other things that I do include, I'm also on the um, LNC which supports local doctors. Um, oh I'm and a mum to three boys. <laughs> so, the most important one. <laughs> yeah, no, don't know about that. So, I mean, just that's before... been a nutshell. Just before we um, started recording this, um, you said mm. to me, I don't know how I do everything, but I don't know how you do everything. <laughs> that sounds like a, an awful lot of things, but um, really interesting. And it would be great to sort of talk about each of them. Um, but yeah. first of all, you're obviously um, one of, you're working with us at Future Frontline. Um, and I, <laughs> I just wondered um, why you kind of wanted to join and um, yeah. I think I wanted to join. I think it, I thought it was a fantastic idea, having um, you know members from all health, you know, all healthcare professionals on one platform, mm-hmm. and you know raising awareness of their profession, uh, keeping people up to date, um, and providing opportunities for people to you know submit articles uh, mm-hmm. about what they may be doing um, or current you know hot topics or contrib- mm-hmm. you know something. Uh, that's in the news or you know something to learn and I thought it was a really really clever idea um, so you know seeing posts from paramedics through to physiotherapists in one area it's it's you know quite refreshing and I suppose being an elderly care you know sp- you know um, special interest mm-hmm. working in that sort of like multidisciplinary uh, forum is quite it's I feel very mm-hmm. comfortable um, that we learn from each other so mm. um, and I suppose with my you know with my elder all my years of experience I thought, thought it was um, maybe useful 
Um, but I think my role in particular, um, which is the news and views, um, mm. you know, part of me, I do love to write. Uh, if I hadn't gone into medicine, I would have gone into journalism. So I think yeah. this way I'm kind of like fulfilling a little bit of both roles. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I, it would be interesting to talk about your sort of views about the multidisciplinary team and maybe how the sort of hierarchy has has changed, hopefully, during your, your time as a doctor. Um, yeah. And, and maybe whether you've got any education about um, different members of the multidisciplinary team at university, because I know we mm. even now, you know, I'm at, I'm at med school now and, you know, even I don't think now we don't get enough education about mm. about the different roles. And I know that pretty much everybody on their personal statement when they're applying to medicine says something about how wonderful the MDT is mm. and how we need to respect each other. But for me, I don't think that respect 100% comes until we understand what each other do and then, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, what do you think? I know. I absolutely agree. What I've just yeah. said. <laughs> no, I think it's really interesting. So, you know, when I started, all going back a long way. Um, <laughs> so, when I was doing um, care of the elderly, so that you were talking about um, nineteen ninety nine, bordering on two thousand, was when I mm -hmm. started my training as a uh, an SBR. I don't know what you all call it now. Um, it was really interesting. It was still very. Uh, the hierarchy was it was very doctor led. So in fact, we we had the uh, the ward clerk come and make us tea and toast. Uh, <laughs> she would bring it all in, and um, and it would be you know the physio, the OT, dietitian, the the, the nurse would be there, uh, staff, the nurse who's looking after each patient, and obviously the team, and it was very much doctor led. Mm. However, as time has gone on, so now, so last year I was doing uh, work on uh, something called the virtual ward, which was uh, a, a sort of like a, a pilot first, but it took off pretty well, where doctors, GPs in particular were going out, just like you would, um, you know, you would have a ward round, but the patients would be in their homes, so, and we would have an MDT meeting every two weeks. Um, in our office so but it allowed patients to be cared for at home which was a really clever mm -hmm. idea um, and I think since then so seeing how RMDT worked then there is far more respect and far more um, understanding of each mm -hmm. other roles and um, understanding the what you know what huge contributions they make and I learn, have learned an awful lot um, I was actually allowed, you know, I'm not allowed, I went out on visits with the social worker, with mm. the physiotherapist, and I saw what they actually did, and I, you know, I was like, wow, uh, so they, they actually make such a difference to people's lives, um, mm. and we couldn't work without them, you know, especially not in elderly care, so I think, you know, uh, you know, you're, it is very hard in medical school, I think there should be an attachment, I think. Um, with mm. these members because you will learn so much from them mm. um, and I think it makes your life easier as well as a doctor and your doctor you know when you fill in those four forms referral to physiotherapist you can actually write down something which makes sense um, yeah. as opposed to just saying you know please see the patient um, mm. but yeah I think you know it's very important part of medicine MDTs 
So. Yeah, definitely. I know that I did like an observational shift with um, LAS, the London Ambulance Service. Mm. Um, that must have been summer 2019 now. And, you know, of course, I'd like to think I had, you know, full respect for paramedics before. And, like, you know, I thought I understood their role. Mm. And, you know, I was only with them for a 12 hour shift. And I was absolutely amazed. Um, yeah that you know they had exactly the same knowledge as, as all the doctors that I'd been with on placement basically and sort of their mm. skill set and the way that they were able to sort of like like risk stratify different patients and the conversations they were having yeah I, I was just like really I don't know I guess my mind was open um, and I guess what I hope with Future Frontline is that we you know even though we may not all have that opportunity to um, sort of have that observational shift with every single um, member of the MDT prior to maybe working um, hopefully we'll sort of gain at least sort of 75% of that insight um, by sort of written blogs and speaking to other people um, mm. so yeah I think I think that's really exciting um, yeah I, th I think that's really a really valid point you know reading about someone's a day in the life of an mm. OT a domiciliary OT um, is something that I would have never ever had access to. So mm -hmm. I think that's what Future Frontline does. It allows medical students to have that. And I suppose, you know, they could, especially with um, this current pandemic, you know, as the students are going for their interviews, mm -hmm. you know, they're actually saying, you know, it's fine, we understand you can't get uh, work experience. Mm -hmm. What have you read? And, mm -hmm. you know, it's just having that, you know, that discussion and be having that understanding. Uh, and yeah, I also paramedics, amazing. They are totally amazing. I don't know how mm. they do it. So, mm. and I think also, you know, for aspiring healthcare students, I know when I was sort of applying, I, I knew I wanted to go into healthcare, but I guess you know, on yeah. my list, it was just sort of doctor, nurse, dentist, maybe yeah. paramedic. Yeah. I and even yeah. until sort of setting up Future Frontline, you know, I ignorantly I, I didn't know about a half of these roles um yep. which yeah it's just it's it's sad that <laughs> but yeah I guess yeah hopefully other people will now be able to to learn in an easy easy space I guess yeah you, you'll find a lot of students you know when I speak to so I do a lot of uh speaking at sixth form colleges mm. um and you know students will come up to me and say you know I want to do something in healthcare yeah, you know, mm. I don't really want to do medicine and nursing. You know, what other areas are there? Mm. And you know, it, it's true. There's just um, you know the the lack of understanding or information mm. out there. I know a number of them will probably go on to prospects and things like that, the websites, um, mm. to gain some sort of knowledge. But yeah, no, it's a huge, huge array of you know uh, professions out there in healthcare. Mm. Um, and you know roles are now evolving you know nurses are mm. evolving they've done they're becoming you know adv advanced nurse practitioners um i worked with a paramedic consultant on the virtual ward he had he was a wealth of knowledge mm. um so that's the thing even within your role there's now um more scope to to uh, you know advance yourself yeah absolutely um, but anyway, so obviously you've been a doctor for so long. So I was wondering um, why why initially you chose to study medicine. Now, do you want my uh, my UCAS uh, potential <laughs> personal statement answer, no. or do you want Absolutely. my honest answer? 
your honest answer definitely <laughs> okay so people who are listening especially future students will be relieved to know that oh my um i didn't actually want to study medicine mm -hmm. it wasn't my first choice mm -hmm. um so i actually like i said before i actually wanted to do journalism mm -hmm. and or become a human rights lawyer so, so, you know, I'm, uh, you know, Asian, uh, and there is sadly at that time when I was uh, 18, it was my father told me, no, you can't do either of those because you probably end up getting uh, kidnapped as an international uh, journalist by some mm -hmm. um, group, and I have to. Uh, ransom you off for 10 goats or something or uh, <laughs> and that's that was actually his words um and the same with the the law aspect so i was actually inspired by my gp um so i went mm -hmm. and I, I did enjoy human biology so i went and sat in with my, my my gp and spoke to her and she actually inspired me a lot um mm -hmm. and that's basically it um i decided to do medicine I think I do think it's really important um, to for people um, and for you to sort of share that you know that you maybe it wasn't what you first considered. As I think you know, to go into a healthcare profession and, and, and medicine, you don't need to sort of want to do it from the age of twelve, like like some people think. And I think you know, um, I know that there's a lot of graduates and a lot of sort of maturer students um, yeah. in my year and. And actually, I think they'll make the best doctors um, because they've and they're they're so committed to it because they've they've had that opportunity to sort of do something else first, and then they've you know decided actually medicine's for me. Whereas for me, I went straight into medicine from school, mm. and sometimes I get those doubts. I'm like, oh, actually, would I be happier doing something else, or should I have spent longer considering something else? So I think sometimes actually having that other thought process. And maybe considering something else is, is quite important too. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that freedom has been taken away. Um, mm. So when I when we were applying as um, student, you know, sixth form students, it was the pressure that is on the sixth form students now is mm. on another level. I, I feel so sorry for them. Um, I mean, we, we never had, you know, the UK cap, we never had BMAT, we didn't even have the personal statements. Um, I mean, we wrote a little bit, um, <laughs> you know, but the main thing was the interview um, mm. and the amount of pressure that is on students now that you have to know you, that you want to do medicine from the word, like literally as you are in mm. secondary school. And that's mm. just not possible. Um, and I think, you know, um, having that opportunity to say well actually i want you know obviously take a gap here it's all very you know but i think you're absolutely right about graduates you know even and when i was in medical school consultants would say you know grad students actually have that that sort of sort of worldly wisdom about them mm. uh, and they know that this is definitely what they want to do um and also with the training in med school as well you know you have to know what you want to specialize in whereas before there was you know, you would do six months standalone post here and then here and then here and then you would decide. Um, so I would definitely tell any healthcare professional, 
you know, you don't have to do it from the word go. Mm. You know, take your time, make your decision. And uh, um, if needs be, you know, wait and take a gap year if needs be. And then I think the answer will come to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, even as a medical student, we're exposed to some really, what's the word, upsetting and, you know, difficult... um, I'm not sure scenes is the right word that makes it sound like a movie um Mm. but um environments I guess um you know I remember in my first year sort of speaking to a patient with a terminal illness and I think Mm. as a sort of 19 year old who maybe hasn't like matured enough or hasn't become you know an actual adult it's one thing sending someone off to Mm. university um and just assuming that they're you know they can cope with all, all of these things And I think, you know, actually maybe graduates have got a bit more life experience um, will be better suited. And actually, you know, there's not not much that I sort of um, think the US are doing right. Um, But I do sometimes wonder, um, you know, maybe their sort of yeah, their system. Um, their medicine system where, you know, you you do medicine as like a postgraduate degree. Sometimes, mm. you know, not thinking about the financial side of that, but sometimes yeah. I think that's probably the better way to do it. Um, but yeah. Well, I think, really- I, yeah, I think also um, another, another potential thing is that you're absolutely right. You know, students have patient contact from year one. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when I did it, we had patient contact from year three, mm-hmm. um, which was you know your clinical years. And per- personally, I preferred that because mm-hmm. I think you know at coming out of sixth form college, and you're absolutely right, you know, having to deal with someone with a terminal illness or even an angry patient mm-hmm. is is you don't have the coping strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the, the GP or the doctor or the nurse that you're sitting with do you know they do they dealt mm-hmm. with this before and then you're meant to go home and just sort of process it all and take mm-hmm. it on board and it can be very distressing um so and you know by the time I was in clinical I was 20 which doesn't seem like a huge difference but two years at that age does mm-hmm. make a difference and then you have all your knowledge you know your anatomy your physiology and stuff so you mm-hmm. understand things better so I don't yeah, know. I don't know whether that's a good idea. Yeah, I, I do. I do sort of agree with you actually. And and you know, I sit on quite a lot of these mock interview courses. And when I mm. ask people, would you prefer a problem-based learning course or a traditional course? You know, ninety-nine percent of people jump to sort of the problem-based um, learning mm. with like really early um, placements and mm. stuff. And I, I have to admit, I. I thought the same initially. Um, I was dying to get on a hospital ward and to mm. sort of see see the real thing. And I think that's probably a good thing if there is the sort of um, support in place um, mm. and sort of, you know, how to cope with that. You know, actually, I think that's a really important sort of lesson that we need, we need to be taught rather than just mm. learning about the bones in the arm. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm babbling away to myself now. Um, no, but... no, no. I think I think it's a really valid point. You know, my son's gone into medicine, mm. my second son, and he he actually chose a place that was traditional. Mm. But I have noticed, you know, from his syllabus that whereas I was purely taught content, you know, it was mm. just that they have integrating integrated lessons about how to break bad mm. news, da 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 da. So I think they're providing the tools for you to, to when you actually get out there, you can deal mm. with it. 
Um, but then, you know, you lot have got the benefits of uh, social media and YouTube and this <laughs> and that. So, you know, us oldies didn't have that. We just had our textbooks. And that was it. Um, yeah. So well, yeah, I think that's definitely helped. Let's talk about social media, actually, because I know that um, you obviously have an amazing Instagram page where you share lots of um, really insightful and educational um, topics. What, what do you think about this massive load of medical students, other healthcare students and doctors and healthcare professionals on Instagram? Yeah. When clearly when you were my age, Instagram wasn't a thing. Oh, thanks, Tasha. I feel really, really <laughs> young. Uh, so, um, yeah, we do. Yeah. In fact, we only had, can you believe it? We only had five channels. Yeah. So, <laughs> shock horror. Uh, so, what do I think? I think it is a good thing. So, I joined Instagram. Um, so, I was, I was shielding. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was very bored. And then I actually saw you in the I think it was the Times, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, this is something I didn't haven't thought about. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember us, you know, joining, and my sons just shaking their head in absolute horror. <laughs> um, so my boyfriend um, did the same. If that makes you feel any better. <laughs> so um, yeah. So. I think there's, you know, there's definitely divided opinion, you know, there's some people who feel, um, uh, no, you know, we should know our place uh, mm-hmm. and stick to what we, our day job. But the thing is, you know, we're still humans at the end of the day, mm-hmm. we still um, uh, want to have a bit of fun and it's a source of release for us, um, mm-hmm. but it's also can be useful, you know, for a positive thing. So definitely in lockdown, and you know, I've spoken to a lot of you know the of the IG medics out there, um, <laughs> and uh, you know all healthcare professionals, and they have said you know the network that, that this has provided mm-hmm. has been a lifeline for a lot of them. Um, they can vent their frustrations. They can connect with people who feel the same way, and you know you, if you just drop a message to someone. Like the other day, I I sent a voice note to somebody who was feeling you could tell was very upset, mm-hmm. um, and it made it made a huge difference to them. They said, oh, "I can't mm-hmm. believe you just reached out." Um, yeah, obviously there's the negative aspects. You're going to get people trolling and hating and sending nasty comments, but you know, whatever. Um, I I actually think it's a good thing. I think it's a it's a way of enga- also engaging young a younger generation. Mm. Getting them, getting them more health, you know, they're health aware. Getting, you know, getting them the information in a forum which they are used to, and yeah. you know, Dr. Emika has done huge things on TikTok, um, mm. and as a result of that, you know, and and yourself, you know, we're we're appealing to uh, an audience that we would have never mm. been able to access before. So that can only be a good thing. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you've said. And I think, you know, besides from sort of the networking and stuff, which for me is absolutely amazing, I've never had the chance to speak to a doctor on a more, and other healthcare professionals for that for that, that matter, um, on a more sort of personal level. Um, whenever I've spoken to a doctor or other HCP, it's always been about the patient or about yeah. the disease, or yeah. it's never been more than that. Like, how actually, how how is your how how is being a doctor? <laughs> you know, yeah. should I be a GP? Should I be a psychiatrist? And just you know, realizing, 
I guess for myself as well, um, that, you know, doctors are humans and, you know, seeing doctors balance having a family and doing other things and, and finding out what, you know, like I said to you earlier, like finding out that GPs aren't just GPs, that they, they do other things. Um, yeah, yeah, I just find that absolutely amazing. And I think, but you know, I also like... Think, do you not think also that, you know, when, you know, people see um, mm. what doctors do, so not only, not, you know, people do a day in the life so they mm. see what goes on behind the scene. Was you know mm. a lot of people like you know saying you know, you know what do they do? You know physiotherapists. You know mm. some of the, you know some of the comments that some of them receive are quite you know you know mm. what you're doing is this, but it, they do so mm. much more. You know they're mm. assessing patients, they're triaging patients, they're going out into the community. So mm. it actually gives them an answer, and and with that comes a respect, to which they quite rightly deserve. Mm. Um, and um, you know with that also comes you know well you know what maybe you should cut them a little bit of slack mm. if they are if the doctors or the physio or the ot is running half an hour late there is a reason for it um yeah but yeah no, and uh, yeah yeah i think it's such a powerful educational tool for healthcare students healthcare professionals as well as sort of the general mm. public um i mm. think you know if you, you don't if you're someone that doesn't see any advantages of it i think you're a bit stuck in the past and unfortunately our, our world you know people their attention spans are potentially getting even shorter um and mm. you know things like tiktok instagram are a really easy way and you know entertaining educational way of, of getting messages across I, I don't know if you've seen the singing dentist but he'll yes. make a song about you know yes. how to brush your teeth or something and it, it's funny and it's hilarious but at the same time there's actually a really like um easy to understand you know educational message of it yeah. um and you know just getting people to say like dentist you know everyone has sort of a like oh no not the dentist but seeing a dentist mm. in, a, in a bit of a different light i think yeah i just think it's really powerful uh, um, no, i think it's, it's a sign basically it's a sign of the times isn't it we're moving mm. forward and you know there is this question about professionalism, you know, mm. and I know that that's another been another question. Um, mm. But you know, as long as you're not putting up, you know, your patient details and yeah. you know being derogatory, uh, you know, it. I think that we all know when you know how to behave. It's. Mm. it's I think it's a, a bit of a a smooth point really to raise about professionalism. There's no reason mm. why, um, and I think medical students as well. I think the fact that you know medical students are going on social media you know it's, it's a good thing because i think it would encourage more people to apply um mm. even more so because they can think wow they're doing medicine but they're also doing x y and z yeah, so exactly. maybe it's not as as difficult or, or, or hard as i mean mm. it is but as as what no, i thought I I, I completely agree with you. I know every time I, I see, well, maybe not this year, but normally before coronavirus, um, every time I saw a family member or sort of my mum's best friend or something, um, they'd always be like, oh, you must be so stressed. You must have so much going on and so much hard work. And, you know, I, I do tend to study like very nine to five and then I yeah. do a lot outside of medicine. And, you know, it yeah. is hard, obviously, but I want I want people to see that it's not all not all head in a book and I think you're right I think a lot of people might hopefully now consider medicine because they're like oh you yeah. don't have to be the most 
intelligent person in the world when they see me doing weird dancing around my flat or something well, like that. Yeah, that, that is slightly questionable. <laughs> but um, I think my, you're, you know, my son, yeah, my son said to me before he came home, um, oh, you know, we were doing an all-nighter and I assumed it was an all-night study group. But they were actually out. I mean, about you know, he and just having fun. They were going. They were went. They went to you know McDonald's for breakfast at five because they were still up. And I was like, oh, okay then. An all nighter has obviously changed in my <laughs> since I was yeah, a student. I, I definitely have never done an all nighter in my life, nor do I ever yeah. plan to do one. I, I need my sleep. And so yeah, that's really interesting. It's it's definitely I'm not trying to make you sound old because you're definitely not. But we're obviously different generations, and it's it's interesting that you know you're you're probably like around my parents' age, and you know that it's Thanks, interesting Tash. that we. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, don't worry. so um, you've answered like why medicine. Um, could you maybe? answer like why did you chose general practice and maybe um explain to our listeners what sort of having a special interest is and and what that means okay so as i mentioned before i was actually training to become a care of the elderly consultant so Mm -hmm. around 1999 i um actually got married and um i sort of I sort of saw the way hospital medicine was changing in that mm. consultants uh, were, you know, were, were given more responsibility. They were expected to do, continue to do on calls late, you know, uh, mm. even <laughs> when they were hoping to, you know, be able to stay at home. Mm. And um, and I thought to myself, I, I don't want to be doing on calls when mm. I'm 52, 53. Um, mm. and, uh, and then sort of I thought, and I... Sort of, I mean, you know, I had met some pretty amazing GPs as a, you know, and my, t- you know, when I was a, a, a registrar, and I thought, hmm. So I spoke to the um, training um, GPs in my area, and they said, you know, why don't you consider general practice? And and I just mm-hmm. and I just changed because I just wanted that work-life balance as well. Um, I you know I I didn't see how I would be able to manage having children and being uh you know a consultant on call me myself some people can do it and i you know i'm in awe of them um but i know that i i couldn't so i chose general and i'm not saying general practice is an easy uh it really 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 isn't um and uh it was very very hard work um Mm. so i had to retrain for a bit and then go to general practice um, and then having children under the age of three under the age of six was was just wow. <laughs> really, it was really yeah. hard. So um, mm. yeah, um, and special interest. So what you can now do as a general practitioner is you can actually specialize um, mm. in a certain like cardiology. You can become a gypsy, so you mm. can actually get a gain a qualification for it as well. Um, and you can continue your speciality and what that allows you to do is you can run on your own clinics and general practice or you can actually sit in with consultants in the hospital there's a number of uh, GPs who actually go out to hospital clinics um, some of them do diagnostics uh, there's a huge I mean we now have these things called portfolio GPs so yeah. they have their general practice they do teaching they're appraisers they 
some of them are in ju- into journalism, photography. It's it's quite cool actually. So yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I think it's so interesting um, the, about having a special interest. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think I think you know, for me, I I'm definitely considering GP, and it's probably one of yeah, it's probably my. Although I'm only just finished, well, I finished my third year, and I've got so much time to decide still. Um, but in the back of my mind, GP is definitely up there, and I think I think having the option to not work nights and not work at the weekends definitely appeals to me. Although I know it's you know long hours and and really difficult, like you mentioned. So I know a few months ago I um, did an Instagram live with a, another GP, Dr. Deva, um, and I asked her what are the sort of top three sort of presenting complaints or, or diseases or things um, that she she sees in, in GP and I wondered if I could ask you the same question as I was quite shocked with her response. Uh, the top three things we see, um, I would say, are lower back pain, mm-hmm. low mood mm. and sort of like upper respiratory tract infections. Yeah, I know that she also said the low mood thing and it it really shocked me, actually. Um, uh, I think, yeah, it just really, really surprised me. Um, So do you think sort of over the time um, you've been working as a GP, um, do you think mental health complaints and conditions have become more prevalent? Um, Do people feel more open to come to their GP and talk about it? What, what What do you think? I think it's both. I think mm. it has become more prevalent, and mm. I also think people are starting to become they're they're more aware um, mm. of you know mental health illnesses. They understand mm. you know what they it may look like, um, and they do feel more comfortable. But I do think the prevalence and incidence is increasing definitely. Mm. And I know that you have sort of uh, another sort of interest in adolescent, um, is it adolescent mental health or just health yeah. in general? Uh, well, mental health in general, definitely. Um, mm. And But I, I suppose adolescence, because I personally feel that it's a group that is often neglected. Mm. Um, there's a huge amount of, you know, everywhere about babies and toddlers and you know mm. primary school children love them to bits mm. Um, mm. but it seems as soon as they turn 11 and they enter that secondary school stage to mm. around 18 when they you know officially adults they seem to get a little bit lost in the system mm. you know they don't sort of fall into any category and I mm. you know because I suppose being a mum to three you know three three of my own and I saw that mm. myself so I made a conscious effort, um, and also my best friend happens to be a psychotherapist, and mm. she also has three. Um, so, and we also all have boys, and they, you know, again, you know, I fa- found that you know young girls were more able to and open to talk about it openly, but me- young men, me- boys, young men are still mm. struggling to even open up about mental health issues. Um, so, you know, I sort of have been trying to champion that and, you know, mm. approaching, um, 
you know, I started just by talking to my my own children's friends. They thought I was a bit weird at first. <laughs> you know, who's this strange lady coming and talking to me? But actually, you know what? They, I'm still in contact with you know students that you know my 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 eldest son's now twenty, mm. and I'm still in touch with them and just touch base with them. Are you okay? And they really appreciate it. Um, mm. You know, and um, I think, you know, it's something that is for really forgotten about. So another thing that I did with my friend Ramon, we went round all our, the local sixth form colleges and we gave um, a talk about, you know, mental health. Mm. And we sort of related it to current, you know, people that they may, may know, you know, mm. from in media and saying, look, you're not alone here. And what really, really amazed us is afterwards we had student after student after student coming up to us and mm. talking to us. So, so yeah, it, that's sort of why um, I have that. But another thing is, is that I, you know, and I have no problems with saying this, I, you know, I've suffered with mental health issues myself. So yeah. I'm more than aware of um, the impact it has. Uh, and so mm. I suppose that's why I've, I, I haven't that interest. Um, but yeah, yeah, I I completely agree with you in the sense that that age range, and I think even university students as well, mm. um, are kind of forgotten about. And yeah. um, I mean, even when you think about the sort of thirteen to sixteen year olds or the eleven to sixteen year olds, for example, mm. and if you know if they go to a, a children's ward for for, um, for example, it's probably co- covered in like elephants and, and yes. giraffes and stuff. Um, yeah. And actually, that's probably a fifteen-year-old, sixteen-year-old um, uh, boy and girl's worst nightmare. It's a nightmare. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I do think it's really important. And also, like you were mentioning, how you went around and did did those talks and sick form um, almost by just starting the conversation. Um, yeah. Then people definitely feel a lot more able to to, to talk openly, which I I kind of learned through Instagram, which I was kind mm. of shocked by. You know, if you just start the conversation, how many people will say, you know, me too, um, yeah. kind of thing. Um, yeah, just really powerful. So, yeah, I'm obviously very interested in mental health um, mm. as well for personal reasons and sort of, mm. um, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I think uh, if I go into GP, I think I would quite like to have a special interest in, in mental health. Um, yeah. And, you know, I obviously, as you said, and, and that the other GP I spoke to on Instagram, about how prevalent sort of low mood is in GP. Um, sometimes I'm like, should I just be a psychiatrist? Mm. Um, and I, I don't know whether sometimes do you, I know noticed that some GPs have, have been speaking about um, definitely during the pandemic, um, they feel sort of frustrated that the amount of mental health complaints that they're seeing, not frustrated that they're seeing that, but frustrated that they don't have the sort of psychiatrist training to be able to, I don't know, I, I don't want to say to properly manage it because I know that I, my own mental health conditions, I've only, I have never seen um, a psychiatrist or secondary care, um, a secondary care physician. Um, and the GP managed my um, depression and general anxiety disorder amazingly. Um, so, you know, I, they definitely do have the, I don't know where I'm going with this now, but you know, do you understand what I mean? Um, yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, I just, you know, phew. So I think a lot of GPs, I think they fall into two categories. 
So mm-hmm. there's those GPs who are, you know, very clued up and very mm. um, aware of, you know, in a way it's their special interest. And, you know, we all have special interests. And there's some GPs who, for whatever reason, may not feel comfortable. Uh, it may trigger something within them. Um, so they may be protecting their own their own health by, you know, mm. maybe saying, can you go and see another partner in the practice? Uh, it's mm. not that they're being, you know, just flippant yeah. or discouraging because, you know, at the end of the day, that that actually is a reason. And I've mm. seen it myself. And, um, yeah. uh, and some people, you know, they don't feel confident you know, in managing um, the, you know, the condition, you know, for me, I find diabetes, oh my Lord, there's so many medicines to remember. And I'm always, I'm always calling up someone saying, oh, what is that name of that drug again? So it's, you know, we're all human and um, we we, we feel comfortable with our own, you know, our own speciality and what we feel we enjoy. Mm. And diabetes, I just can't keep track of the drugs. Um, I can manage the condition no problem. Once it starts getting up to level three, four drugs, I'm just lost. Um, and um, so I think there's that, and there are GPs who feel more comfortable. But I do think you know GPs are very well placed in managing a majority of mental health issues. I think yeah. referral to psychiatry is probably when you know someone's not responding to treatment or is not making the progress. Yeah. Um, but what we do need more of, and we are shockingly lacking in it, is um, you know uh, support from counselling services, psychotherapists. Yeah. That yeah. is what we need. You don't actually need a psychiatrist. We need more mm-hmm. of those. We need more counselling, because yeah. I'm a firm believer that you know um, medication has its place, but mm-hmm. if you don't un- address the underlying issue, you know the the core issue, the foundation of your you know, problem. Medication will only work to a certain level. We need to try and re- you know, address the underlying issues, mm. and I think that's where counselling. And having had counselling myself numerous times, I mm. know the benefit of it, and I know how empowering it is. That mm. you know, people think of counselling as oh, it's just a bit of a chat. It so <laughs> isn't. It so yeah. isn't. You know, it's really I- empowering. Yeah, I completely agree. I finished my first round of um, CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, for mm. <laughs> not explaining it to you <laughs> and mm. to anybody listening. Um, yeah. And yeah, I just came out like, oh my word, everybody should do this, you know, yes. mental illness or, or not. And I was just like, wow, why doesn't everyone do this kind of thing? Um, but yeah, that's that's really interesting to get your sort of view on that. And yeah, I, I now, now that you said that, I can completely see that being the problem, you know, not having mm. enough psychotherapists and counsellors um so we've kind of gone to the topic I was just wondering what because obviously the prevalence of mental health illnesses in healthcare professionals and, and doctors um is, is really high um why do you think that is do you think it's the the personality or do you think you know that's attracted to medicine or do you think it's the job but both um and you know what do you think the the support is like for for doctors and, and do doctors feel comfortable to say, you know, I'm ill and I'm, I need to be the patient now. Mm. I think I think the reason mental health issues are so prevalent amongst healthcare professionals is, is the pressure of the job. It's, yeah. and, you know, at the end of the day, you're talking about people's health um, and the responsibility of that is, is quite immense. Um, mm. You know, having to... One minute you're discussing, you know, someone's athlete's foot, 
and the next patient you may see is mm. you know, I'm talking about general practice is you having yeah. to tell them they have a terminal illness and then again if you go to cardiology clinic you're telling one patient mm, you're fine you know it's just got a bit of blood pressure and the next one actually mm. you know you need to have a triple bypass and you know, mm. in a moment that person's life has changed um, yeah. so I think it's the pressure the workload as we all know is immense um, there's mm. not enough enough of us um, mm. there's not enough diagnostics so we're constantly having to and then obviously how the constant cost the cost the cost and trying to reduce referrals mm. trying to reduce this so it's like we're constantly chasing our tails that's what we feel I feel mm. um, and I think sometimes I feel you know the joy of being a clinician has been taken away from me you know, I love yeah. my clinical medicine. I love seeing patients. I love that, mm. you know, trying, you know, to, to help people. But having to make sure that I've ticked this box and that box yeah. and do this form and that, that is mm. taking the joy away. So I think that has caused, you know, and the pressure. And I think it does attract a certain mm. type of person to go into healthcare. Yeah. Um, you know, there's tend to be quite empathetic and that can be quite draining on you. Yeah. Um, and then I think we're quite, we're very hard on ourselves. Um, mm. You know, we, we constantly are pushing ourselves to a certain level. We expect very high standards of ourselves. Um, mm. And the work ethic we have is quite unforgiving. Um, mm. You know, the number of times I've gone into work when I've been quite very sick, um, you know, burning up with a fever. Um, yeah or you know oh you know my head I mean, literally seeing a patient and then going and vomiting um mm. because I don't want to put the strain on my colleagues mm. um so I think it's just sort of like a geared up to uh, sadly eventually lead to that I think there is a much more of an awareness of work-life balance it's much more openly discussed mm. um there's still we've got a long way to go um mm. and uh you know things like protected teaching and protecting you know um times you know needs to be re- literally set set in stone because um, mm. all too often it's like oh can you just do this or that and then your afternoon's gone mm. um support mm. available uh, i think there is more increasingly more support available for for healthcare professionals specifically mm. because you're quite dealing with quite a niche area and I think before we were often referred to more general counselling and they didn't quite understand the sort of like the needs we had but now that has changed and you know there's the practitioner health care program in London which solely mm. deals with you know doctors um, and there's more and more you know from the LMC the BMA all sorts of um uh, the you know even Bema and the MDA they all have this sort of like supportive services now that you can access, so it's much more uh, uh, aware. You're much more aware of it, and I think doctors, sorry, no healthcare professionals in general feel more comfortable discussing it, mm. um, um, their mental well-being. Whereas before, you know, in in my day, um, it was just you know <laughs> it was just you know stiff upper lip and just get on with it um so there you go yeah definitely that's yeah that's really interesting and then 
Yeah, glad to see these changes. Um, slightly different question now. I actually, I've just got so many questions for you. No, um, probably, probably because I'm interested in GP, but how has your role as a GP um, changed over the last what, year now with um, coronavirus and, and sort of, you know, online and telephone consultations? Because, yeah, how has it changed, basically, and what's it like? So, um, yeah, so I think everybody's aware now that uh, GPs are having to, sadly, not see patients as much. Mm. And we all miss our patients terribly. And in fact, every single mm. GP I speak to actually hates it, um, hates mm. not seeing their patients. I think the doing things, I mean, we treat, we, we've, we've always done telephone consultations. That is nothing new. Yeah. Um, and because a majority of you know, the things can be sorted out over the phone. And if the patient needs to be seen, then we would book them in the same day or just call them in in our lunch break. But now, mm. obviously, there's the, 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 the pandemic and the safety aspect. So we will call our patients um, first, you know, make sure there's you know, nothing COVID related. And it, we're still, mm. I'm not, sadly, we still have patients thinking that they can come in with COVID symptoms. Mm. Um, and then we'll call them in, in tend to be in the afternoon, um, uh, not me myself, because I'm shielding, I'm doing something different, but I know what's mm. going on and they're, you know, doing, the patients are seen with PPE. Uh, a number of GPs have gone out to the COVID hot hubs, which mm. are solely seeing patients referred by GPs uh, with COVID symptoms, which are deteriorating. So it's like an intermediate step um, GPs are now ask, being asked to be vaccinated as well. Um, and then there's obviously the 111 have asked for more clinicians to come on board to, you know, managing senior clinicians come on board to start managing calls um, mm. and, you know, uh, directing them appropriately. Mm. Um, so the, it, it's a complete game changer, really. Um, and uh, having to use telemedicine, I, mm. I, you'll find no, not, not one GP actually likes it. It, it. it was inevitable. We saw it coming in the future, but what happened with the pandemic is that we were, le- we were expected to learn within literally days. Um, it was accelerated learning to another level. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, think that, I think you'll find the majority of GPs can't wait to start seeing their patients again. Yeah, I definitely have heard that. Um, it's interesting because I kind of, as a patient, um, I absolutely prefer telephone consultations. And I said mm. this to to my um, my GP at uni, not my personal GP, um, kind of expecting all patients to have the same view as me. But actually, yeah, no. Um, no. And, you know, even I was kind of like, you know, even taking mental health, I was kind of like, oh, it's so much easier to talk on the telephone. Yeah. But actually, if people are in, you know, uh, their house with their families, uh, maybe, you know, their mum or grandma is next door and they, you know, yeah. they don't want them to hear what they're talking about. You know, maybe they're not even mental health, other sort of personal yeah. and sensitive topics. So, yeah, I found that really interesting, actually. It definitely, I was a bit ignorant. <laughs> um, but that I mean, you can do, yeah, you, yeah, you can do video consultations. Yeah. But, you know, we do do video consultations as well. But the one mm. thing that you, even through a video consultation, you know when you're sitting there with a patient and there's these subtle non-verbal cues mm. that you may not, you know, you're not going to pick up on when you're, you're looking mm. at a webcam. Um, 
And uh, that yeah. is actually when you're training um, as a GP, you know, when you're going through your GP training, nonverbal cues, you know, these subtle things that you pick up on, this certain shift mm. of, a, of a leg, you know, a, you know, it makes such a difference. It makes such a difference. Um, and you can pick up on it on your consultation. And that's all about, you know, your consultation skills. Mm. Um, and I think you'll find any, every healthcare professional will say that those subtle things that they pick up on mm. um, make a huge difference. Yeah, that's really interesting. I suppose it's, it's sort of as well, you know, a patient really wants to come and speak to you about a mental health thing or something and they mm. just sort of make up a physical health thing and it's only maybe when they're going to leave the door that they're like actually doctor or something, yeah. things like that, I guess. Yeah. Um, what, so but you the other thing that we, oh, sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say another thing, not only mental health is that another thing that we're, we, we're worrying about in... Um, is safeguarding issues so yeah. you know things like domestic violence from children who mm. are you know uh, being abused you know these are the things mm. that we we're worrying about now so, yeah 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 okay. sorry I'm getting <laughs> No, 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 no not at all it's no yeah. it's really important it's, it's and, very yeah. it's very yeah it's very important um, my mind just gone blank. I was, oh yeah, I remember. <laughs> um, so before we started, I was about to say before we came on air, like we're on some radio show. Yeah. Um, but before we started recording, you mentioned that um, you've been working for for one one one. Could you tell us, um, what, yeah, what what that's been like and, and what your role in, involves with that? Um, so one one one. So what we are getting through is all the COVID calls. Um, so we, the patients mm. who basically call one one one, and uh, with COVID symptoms, and mm. it's really not that glamorous. We basically sit there and we assess their pay, assess their 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 symptoms, and mm. we decide what the outcome is. So do they need? Can they be seen? If it's within hours, can they be seen in the general practice? So mm. you know, be contacting them, or do they need to be assessed? Do they need to go A and E? Do they need an ambulance? Um, mm. And, uh, you know, we also, uh, it's meant to be only COVID, but we do get the non-COVID ones sneaking in. Um, mm. And again, it's just assessing patients um, on the phone yeah. and sort of like directing them to where they need to go, assessing them very quickly, right, you need you need to be seen, you need an, you need an ambulance, you need to go to mm. hospital. Um, so, yeah, it's, that, it's not that, that yeah. Sorry. No, 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 no. You don't need to say it's not that glamorous. It's obviously yeah. really important. And I was, I was wondering how. So, kind of in that role and um, in your sort of, I was going to say normal job as a GP. Yeah. Um, um, how do you deal with sort of the uncertainty of? Because I think this is something that I've thought about recently. And and how do you deal with? You know, say you know someone comes to you with with chest pain and you've just decided that you know they can go home or whatever it's not it's not anything serious but how yeah. do you deal with yeah because obviously in GP you know in hospitals you've got x-rays you can get a yeah. blood test you've got everything I mean obviously I know you can get a blood test in GP but it takes yeah. longer so yeah how do you deal with sort of yeah that uncertainty so Goodness, I'm almost like an old, 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 old man again, but it's it's time, it's experience. With obviously, as you mm. get more experience, you become more confident in your in your skills. But mm. it's important not to become complacent. So, mm. so, any patient who 
I just have, you know what? I think you should always trust your instincts. Yeah, um, so they tend to be that. right. Yeah, I think your instincts tend to be right. And if you mm. just have a needling doubt, what I, you know, you'll find lots of GPs, in fact, nearly all GPs do, um, will write down a patient's name and number and say, right, I'm just going to give them a call before I leave for mm. the day. Or they will say to the, you know, we all, we're all, we're, you know, in medical school, you're taught about safety netting, making yeah. sure the patient knows what to do, um, if their symptoms deteriorate, blah, blah, blah. But I think, you, you know, your gut instinct tends to be, tends to be spot on. Um, you know, hey ho! If you get it wrong, it's not a bit. You know, what you haven't lost anything, but mm. if you get it right, you know the consequences are so much greater. Um, so I think it's a matter of knowing. I think it's a combination of things: safety netting, understanding your limitations, and asking for help when you're not sure. Yeah, that yeah, that asking for help. I imagine, especially when your last experience is so important. Um, yeah. Do you, do you feel, you know, a sense of pressure working for 111 and obviously triaging these patients with COVID, you know, to obviously, you know, we're all aware, well, hopefully all aware of the, you know, enormous numbers of, of people in hospital now with coronavirus mm. really sadly. And, you know, we've all seen images of, of ambulances, you know, sadly waiting outside of A&E and, you know, just not mm. enough beds. So, yeah, do you, is there a sense of pressure to sort of, keep people out of hospital who who can stay out yeah what, what's it yes. like yeah so mm. there is an immense pressure to keep people um if possible mm. at home i i suppose where there's these you know covid hot hubs are coming in is that intermediate step you know they're not mm. so unwell that they need to go to hospital but they need to be seen by somebody um another th you know thing that's come about is a lot of um, organizations and community uh, centres are doing um, pulse oximetry loans so mm. you know they, they, they go out and they will um, there's been a coordination between um, you know, they have a number you can call and you can they'll loan out to pulse yeah. oximeter um, which is a fab idea um, mm. and um, some GPs now for instance in my what I did in the last lockdown is that we raised funds we did a charity fundraiser for uh, pulse oximeters for our local hot hub, hub so they could loan them out to yeah. patients so you know um that's what yeah we try things i think you if a patient needs to go in they need to go in um yeah. and there's only so much you can do and then you safety net and you say look if you get worse you know this is what you should do but um i think that you know the the, the covid hot hubs are helping immensely but the thing with COVID is that the deterioration is so rapid, there's only so much you can do. Um, mm. Yeah. So thank you so much, Dr. Andy Ahmed, for taking the time out of your day to talk to me about all things medicine and being a doctor. I know you're super busy at the moment, working on the front line, but I'm sure you've inspired a lot of people to pursue a career in medicine. I know that even I have find it really inspiring to listen to you and it really excites me um, for my future, hopefully as a GP. And I'm sure everybody listening to this, and I hope everybody listening to this has enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking to you. And yeah, join us next time for our next podcast episode and see you all later. Bye now. Mm -hmm.